We'll hear argument next, number 99-1613, Robert Shaw versus Kevin Murphy. Mr. Oler. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case presents the question of whether an inmate has a freestanding right to provide legal assistance to another inmate, which entitles correspondence from that inmate to special protection under the First Amendment. With respect to the facts of this case, the question may be phrased. There's some discussion in the briefs about uh, the penalties that were imposed on the prisoner by virtue of his writing the letter that he wrote. I guess those are not at issue here? I don't believe they are, Your Honor. In fact, uh, I believe the respondent in his brief at page 10 indicated that Mr. Murphy did not seek expungement of uh, the disciplinary action that was taken against him. We believe, with respect to the facts of this case, the question may be whether or not an inmate can evade censorship of communication and discipline for insolent language contained in a letter to another inmate, which also uh, contains legal advice. If an inmate does not have a free standing... We take it as a given that this was insolent language? Because, you know, I'm somewhat uh, dubious whether this was insolent language, but that's a given in this case. We believe it's a given. We don't believe that Mr. Murphy uh, contested um, whether or not there was sufficient evidence to find that he was insolent. And, and he had the opportunity to contest that. He could. He, he did, Your Honor. Uh, and as I indicated to the question from uh, Justice O'Connor, he has not sought expungement of, of that disciplinary infraction. If an inmate does not have a freestanding right to receive legal assistance, as this Court stated in Lewis versus Casey, then the corollary excuse me, the corollary must be true. Uh, An inmate does not have a freestanding right to render legal assistance. It is petitioner's position that legal advice is entitled to no greater protection than speech in general in the prison context. Um, Mr. Ola, may may I ask if, uh, at least I understood that the the position of the United States is not the same as the one that you're telling us about nothing else being at issue, uh, that the, that the um, insolence and the other charge. I thought that the position of the United States was that this should be remanded for consideration of those factors of, of that part of the case in light of Turner against Safley. Is that wrong? Uh, that is the position of the United States, uh, and that is a position that we um, uh, disagree with. Um, it's our position that, that once the uh, cloak of special protection is removed from the legal advice, uh, the legal advice privilege, as we termed it in the, the brief, the, the question is whether or not legal advice under the Turner analysis, um, or whether or not the prison's disciplinary policy under the Turner analysis uh, is reasonably related to a legitimate penological interest. And we believe it is. Once that determination has been made that the policy is valid, uh, and in fact, the respondent has conceded that he's not contested the facial validity of that policy. But once, once the validity of that policy under Turner is determined, then the only question we believe is whether or not um, Mr. Murphy, in fact, violated the policy. And, and as I mentioned uh, to Justice Scalia's question, uh, he has not raised that question. And that's a due process question. It was not raised below. 
In, in Turner itself, the court uh, did not distinguish between legal communications and other types of communication between inmates, and there is no logical reason why legal communication should be entitled to any different standard of review than other types of speech, including political speech. Well, well suppose you have a prison where, uh, in a disciplinary proceeding, not a, not a not a criminal charge, but a disciplinary proceeding, one inmate, as a custom, often represents another. Do you think then the um, so-called inmate law clerk would have a, a privilege to communicate with the inmate that he's representing? Um. I, I, it's, it's maybe a little hard for you to answer because we have to assume a lot of regulations and stuff that are that, that are not in play. But but just to flat out say that there's never this right, it's just somewhat uh, goes somewhat far, I think. Well, and uh, in this case, uh, in this case is an example, perhaps of the hypothetically opposed, but Mr. Murphy had the opportunity in this case to communicate to, to the inmate Tracy. Um, he could have provided the legal advice that was contained in the letter, don't plead guilty, have your attorney get a hold of me, I've got some information. Uh, inmate Murphy went beyond that. Uh, oh, but no, but my question is, does he have a right to send the communication? But you, you say there's no right at all. We don't, we don't, we don't have to... Get into insolence or uh, interpretation of the letter. There's just simply no right. I'm, I'm suggesting that in some instances there might be. Um, with respect to inmate-to-inmate -inmate communications, um, uh, it's our position, no, that there is there is no right for inmate-to-inmate. -inmate Even when one inmate's representing another in, say, a grievance proceeding or, uh, or pardon me, a disciplinary proceeding. Um, not with respect to communication uh, under the Turner. Uh, opinion, Your Honor. Well, if, uh, are, you, are you answering your question limited simply to sending letters, or are you saying that one inmate can be assigned to defend another and the state and the, and the prison may preclude all communication between them of any sort whatsoever? Are you saying that? No, Your Honor, we're not saying Okay. No. So you're limiting it simply to written, your, your answer to Justice Kennedy is limited writ simply to written statements. Correct. And you take the position then that if an inmate were, by the prison, assigned to provide legal assistance to a, another prisoner, that no written communication could be sent from the one providing the assistance to the other prisoner? Under Turner, I believe Turner can be read that way. Under the facts of this case, um, the only thing that the prison was punishing was the insolent language contained in the communication, and the prison in this case did permit that communication to occur between uh, inmate Murphy, who was a law clerk, and uh, inmate Tracy. But what possible interest would the prison have in prohibiting, assuming you allowed an inmate to provide legal services to another, which sometimes I understand happens, what interest of the prison is there in making sure that it is never done in written form, which the prison can then read? With respect, with respect to an inmate law clerk program, as occurred here, yeah. uh, we permitted, uh, the prison permitted communications between. But you just told me that you would not allow any written communication, even though a law clerk um, assignment had been made. I, I'm sorry, I, I may have I misspoke or, or misunderstood, but I was just simply saying that Turner seemed to imply that, that uh, with respect to inmate-to-inmate -inmate correspondence, um, that communications 
could be prohibited by a prison. And, and in Turner, in fact, uh, the regulation at issue, uh, which was at the Rens Correctional Facility in, in Missouri, uh, as practiced at that particular uh, prison, precluded uh, legal communications. Uh, well, you, you don't have to go that far to, in this case, nor, nor do we. I, I mean, really, all, all you're asserting in this case is that normal prison regulations, including those against uh, displaying insolence towards the, the prison guards, do not become suspended when there are communications involving legal, legal representation. Isn't that as far as we, as, as we would have to go in order to give you all that you're interested in here? That is correct, Justice. I, I, I'm, now I'm slightly mixed up because I thought, suppose that inmate A wants to represent inmate B, but he isn't. I thought you were saying that's this case and there's no special right to be a lawyer. You don't have a constitutional right to get to be a lawyer any more than you get to be an architect. Right? Correct. But there's a different situation. A is representing B. In that case, B, not A, has a right to legal representation, which may involve sending letters. Is that right? If we're ever going to term uh, the... the uh communication that, that occurred here as representation. This has nothing to do with that, I thought. Am I not right that A is not representing B in this case? He just liked to. That's correct. All right. Yep. So if we're writing an opinion, I guess, shouldn't I be careful drawing on your personal view, not some case, but your view as a lawyer, to make certain that we don't say, we don't talk about the situation where B, who is the person who needs a lawyer, he may well have a right to get communications from his lawyer that is different from the ordinary right just to speak. Am I right? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Now, what about the case where we have an association of people who help to provide lawyers to inmates? I'm obviously thinking of NAACP versus Button, for example. And maybe that association of lawyers or people who want to give lawyers to inmates has a few inmates in it. Do, might, might they have a special right? Uh, Your Honor, with respect to if there are... You want to say we don't have to get into that here? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we have to get into that. I, I think the NAACP cases and the NRA Primus line of cases dealt with um, access to courts. In fact, I think this court used that language in the Primus case. Dealt with access to courts by free citizens. Uh, and providing free citizens with the tools um, to, to uh, gain a foothold into the court and to advance uh, their civil rights. And <coughs> there is uh, a large amount of jurisprudence from this court relative to the right of access as it applies to inmates, and, and we believe that that jurisprudence uh, controls relative to the right of access by inmates in a prison setting. Would it have um, been the same offense, in your view, if Murphy had sent the letter not to um, Tracy, but to Tracy's assigned counsel? That would be another matter. And, uh, in fact, that correspondence could have occurred. Um, And the difference between that situation and the situation uh, that's presented in this case is the correspondence is going outside the prison, and so it's 
the, the confrontational aspect of inmate Murphy's letter is not the same because it's being uh, sent outside the prison. Suppose it was sent to an investigative reporter. That, that would have been fine. Um, once again, we don't have that confrontational aspect that occurred when this correspondence remained within the prison. Well, what, in both the, the Justice Ginsburg's hypotheticals, I, I, I assumed the prison authorities would read the letter first. Or am I wrong about that? It's a hypothetical. I assume that's your regulation. Don't you read everything go that? No, our policy, our policy permits outgoing correspondence to go out and is only — Whether or not it's read. It, it's not read. It's only read if there is reasonable probability okay. to believe that it contains certain types of information that would be detrimental to the prison. So in most, in most cases, outgoing correspondence is not read. What is the confrontation that you're talking about? I, I, may, I may not understand what you mean. Well, the, you spoke the confrontational aspect. What, what do you mean by that? The, the language contained in the letter um, was disparaging uh, about uh, Correctional Officer Galley. Yeah. Um, and it, it was a challenge to the authority of uh, Correctional Officer Galley in particular, um, but correctional staff in general. And, and as that — Well, it was a challenge to, to his exercise or, or, as the letter claimed, his abuse of authority. Correct. And, and there were also other comments in there concerning his um, sexual orientation, which uh, this court, I believe, in Thor Thornburg recognized as uh, a security concern in the prison context. Right. What, what's the confrontation? Are you, are you talking about the confrontation between the person who writes letter and the prison censor who reads it? No, I, I think the confrontational aspect of that and the uh, challenge to authority goes to uh, between inmate Murphy and Officer Galley. Well, Officer Galley never saw the letter, could not have been, I take it, expected to see the letter. The only person who could be expected to see the letter other than the recipient was the prison censor. Well, the, the problem is we don't know what happens to the letter once it gets, uh, assuming that the letter was transmitted to inmate Tracy. Um, that letter could have Yeah, but you're talking about the confrontational aspect of the letter. I thought you meant that it, it, it encourages the recipient to become confrontational with the guards. It does that also, Your Honor. It does that also? Yes. Oh, but that's not what you meant by his confrontational aspect. Then I, then I share Justice Souter's uh, perplexity. Yeah. I yeah, don't I, understand I thought, who's, who he's confronting. Yeah. I mean, I, I can understand how it's not good for prison discipline to allow prisoners to incite one another against the guards. If that's what you're talking about, it makes sense. But, but uh, how one letter from one prisoner to another prisoner confronts the prison guards, that, that's beyond me. And, and that's one aspect of it, and that, and that is a, a concern, is that, uh, in fact, uh, this particular inmate that the letter was sent to had just recently assaulted a correctional officer. Um, this letter would tend to incite uh, inmate Tracy. The other concern um, is uh, what this court termed a well, ripple More so than if his lawyer had told him, his lawyer said, I got this letter from a fellow inmate. What do you think of it? Or if an investigative reporter asked him, would it be less comfort? Would be would that would that be less of a problem? There are there still are concerns there. Uh, I mean, how is it different? You have no control over the lawyers. I take it. That's correct. You do have control over the prisoners. That's correct. More or less. Yes. yes. Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve uh, my remaining time. Very well, Mr. Oller. Thank you, uh, Ms. Miller. We'll hear from you.
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals' categorical protection of inmate legal advice from rules that reasonably regulate all other prison correspondence um, is inconsistent both with this Court's precedents and with realities of prison management. Now, in our view, prisoners obviously, and in this Court's view, prisoners have a right of access to the courts to press their own grievances and claims. But this Court has never recognized a freestanding First Amendment right on the part of other inmates to get involved in each other's litigation efforts. That is particularly true when the litigating inmate is already represented by an attorney. Indeed, in Lewis versus Casey, this Court held that while inmates must be allowed to bring suits challenging their own convictions and conditions of confinement, impairment of any other litigating capacity, and that would include serving as a legal advisor, is simply one of the incidental and perfectly constitutional consequences of conviction and incarceration. Ms. Millett, would you clarify for us what the United States would remand? What would be open to the court below to consider, assuming we accept your first position, that there is no right to represent one inmate to another to represent each other. There's no attorney-client relationship that stems from any constitutional guarantee. Let's say we accept that. What would you remand on? The remand would be on an as-applied challenge to this particular communication. It would not be a request, as the Ninth Circuit found here, for categorical protection of all inmate communications of legal advice. The question would be whether uh, application of the insolence regulation to this particular communication, looking at its particular content, would be consistent with the First Amendment. But what, what, uh, am I wrong, or was the petitioner wrong in suggesting that that had not been raised? Well, our understanding is that what was not raised is whether or not this communication fell within the definition of insolence or violation of a due process or interference with the due process hearing under the terms of their regulations. And that's not what we're saying should be remanded. What we're saying should be remanded is whether there's an as-applied constitutional challenge to application of those regulations to this communication. Which would be based on that same thing. I mean, what what would an as-applied challenge be based on unless it is the fact that, in fact, (laughs) this regulation wasn't violated? No, you could have — Prisons could have a regulation. For example, they could decide that insolence includes any, uh, for example, criticism of a, a guard. So, so that — and those might well uh, pass facial uh, constitutionality under a Turner versus Safley analysis. But you could still find that a comment to a guard that, you know, that's a bad haircut would fall within the meaning of insolence and so would fall within the regulation but would not survive a Turner versus Safley as applied analysis well, are you, are you, because it would not be a security — are you, are you suggesting that there are two levels of application of Turner, that even if a regulation uh, on, a, on its face, so to speak, is valid under Turner, it could be invalid as applied? Absolutely. And I think that's what, in, for example, in Thornburg versus Abbott, this Court upheld regulations as applied to public generally — I'm sorry, not as applied, facially — the application of a re- prison regulation limiting uh, the types of publications and magazines that could come into a prison, but remanded for an as-applied review of whether publica- publication by publication, the prison's decision to keep a particular communication out violated the First Amendment. And that's all that we think the remand here would uh, need to encompass. 
But the important thing to keep in mind and the main problem with the Ninth Circuit. Did, did he raise that question below? That's our understanding of the complaint, and it's based in part on the magistrate judge's analysis, uh, which is in the petition appendix, where they talk about the, the failure of the, the state to come forward at that stage with information showing why this particular communication was a threat to security. So, so, well, so, so in your view, there is. That is going to whether the regulation was violated, whether this particular uh, communication was indeed uh, insolence towards the guard. Isn't that perfectly explicable as raising the, the issue of whether the regulation was violated? Well, we, we, understood, we understood that argument and the complaint, that, that analysis by the magistrate judge and, and uh, respondents, including respondents' arguments here about whether, you know, if, how, how this particular communication does or does not um, challenge security interest as an as-applied challenge. But we're not here because we have a strong interest on that. If we've misunderstood the record and there is no as-applied challenge in the case, then there'd be no basis for Is another way of saying what you're trying to — maybe I don't quite get it — that even though he doesn't have a First Amendment right to uh, act as a lawyer and, and practice law in the prison context, he had a First Amendment right to write this particular letter. Yes, our, well, our position is that there's no special First Amendment status accorded to this communication um, because it was right, legal just advice. Just ordinary not, First Amendment review. Exactly, he, exactly. That, the crux of our point is that Turner versus Safley is a sufficient test to review all prison regulations well, and in, in your view, there's a First Amendment right for prisoners to communicate with each other? I mean, does, that has to be the beginning point based the, on my understanding of your argument. Well, the, our position is that, that inmates could always claim that, and the burden would be on the prison to show in a, show in a circumstance that there is or is not. For mo- most of the time, there's a lot of prisoner communication uh, that goes but, on that is not a threat to prison security. But that's a very security. substantial holding. Yeah. You're, you're asking us to have a foundational that. proposition that there's a First Amendment right for prisoners to communicate. We've never held that. that the, I think the premise of the recognition that, that you re, would be reviewed under Turner versus Safley, and I think um, a regulation that said prisoners shall never, under all circumstances, shall never speak to another inmate, no inmate shall ever speak to another inmate, would have to be reviewed under Turner versus Safley, and the government would have to come in and show why any communication at all between inmates is a threat to security. Well, and there's another point, too, that if the prison regulations do permit communication, there is still a first, there arguably could be a First Amendment right to say certain things in those communications without, uh, in other words, they, can, they say, we'll let you write, write letters, but we're going to tell you exactly what you can say. That's a rather strange view. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm sorry if I misunderstood your question. Our only position is that, and there certainly may be circumstances, in fact, in which it would be appropriate for a prison to say there shall be no communications at all between inmates, either curfew times or lockdown situations or high security or isolation. Well, I thought this involves such a situation. The, the person to whom respondent wanted to communicate was in a maximum security section. He was. A- and I had understood the prison did not permit communication from prisoners in other parts of the prison with lesser restrictions to prisoners in the maximum security. Am I wrong? Um, our, our understanding is that he, wa- he was allowed to write a letter to um, this inmate. So there was not a complete ban on communication between uh, people, inmates in uh, respondents' category and this high-risk or this maximum security unit. There was not a complete ban on communications. It was just the content of this letter. Clearly, any communication that is written between prisoners must be consistent with valid penological limitations on those, and those would include that communications not be insolent or incite one inmate against another, 
inmate against another or against guards or prison staff. The important thing we think to keep in mind with respect to the Ninth Circuit's rule is that the Turner versus Safley test is sufficient for this pur- for purposes of analyzing any First Amendment claims to speech or other rights invoked by prisoners. And that beyond that, prison, prison correspondence involving legal advice does not um, have any special exemption from those rules, should not be analyzed under any separate standard, and in fact can present the exact same dangers that routine correspondence does. They can, uh, according to special status, as the Ninth Circuit has done to inmate correspondence, could allow that type of correspondence to become a ready vehicle for secretly coded communications and other illicit communications. Jailhouse lawyers are frequently a menace to prison discipline, and they could be allowed through special treatment to set up a uh, uh, order or hierarchy that would compete with the prison order system. Um, in addition, the circulation among inmates of potentially volatile allegations and accusations can, in the judgment of prison officials, exacerbate the already extremely tense relations between prison officials and inmates. And that, much like in Jones versus North Carolina Prisoner Labor Union, where this court held that um, prisoner communications prisoner assertions of First Amendment speech and association rights that are focused on encouraging an increase in adversarial relations between prison and staff can be regulated and restricted consistent with legitimate penological objectives. And finally, it's important to keep in mind that there are ample alternative channels for inmates to communicate information bearing on a case. They can communicate with attorneys, government officials, courts, and other members of the public. They may bring their own grievances or lawsuits. Um, the appropriate analysis, we think, is Turner versus Safley. And beyond that, the, to the extent someone is concerned about information getting into the courts. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Mellon. Uh, Mr. Renz, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Um, it appears to me that the state prison here is proposing a change in the Turner rule, which the Turner uh, opinion does not accommodate. As I understand the state's position, so long as their rules are neutrally drawn and so long as the rules on their face satisfy Turner, then they are free to apply them in any manner in which they, they deem fit. I don't think that Turner uh, uh, says that. I don't think that Turner nor Abbott uh, contemplate that. This is an as-applied case. It was an as-applied case, and it always has been an as-applied case, with the single exception that Mr. Murphy challenged the rules on their face as vague. And the vagueness issue, the facial vagueness issue, is not before this Court. This case is strictly about punishment of content of speech. I think there are several issues here that are not in dispute. First, This is speech that, if uttered outside the prison, is without question protected by the First Amendment. Second, this communication was permitted within the prison. That is, Mr. Murphy was permitted under the prison's regulations to write to Mr. Tracy. And third, if these two things are true as they are, then Turner and Abbott provide the analytical framework for this case. Well, I I thought the Ninth Circuit uh, articulated at least some uh, freestanding First Amendment right of a fellow prisoner 
to offer legal advice to another prisoner. At least there's language to that effect in, in its opinion. I, I, I think that the language in the Ninth Circuit's opinion — you defend that as a proposition here? Well, I, I, would, I, would, I would contend, Your Honor, that, that the Ninth Circuit was being somewhat circular when they said that um, the, the prison's interest is, is at a low edge ebb when the, when the language is legal advice. Well, no, do you contend — excuse me — do you contend that the prisoner has a freestanding First Amendment right uh, to offer legal advice to another prisoner. No, no, we do not contend. But that's the only the question. That, that's presented. the question that was presented. Justice O'Connor put the question to you. That's the question in the blue brief. That's the end of the case. That's not the end of the case, Your Honor. I'm the respondent, and this court may affirm the judgment of the Ninth Circuit on any grounds that appear in the record. Well, but I mean, this this is the question that we're interested in. Yes, but this is this, in my view, is a straightforward Turner application. Well, but do you have an answer? Are you saying that you agree uh, with that the question presented, does the First Amendment of the United States Constitution grant a state in prison inmate an independent right to assist another state prison inmate? Do you agree that that is not a correct statement of the law? I would agree with that, yes. But what we have here is we have a communication permitted by the prison that contained information and contained legal advice. And Mr. Murphy was punished for what he said. He was punished for what he said, and the prison has never, ever stated why that punishment advanced the interests it articulates. It has never shown the connection between its articulated interests and the punishment of Mr. Murphy, and that is exactly what Turner and Abbott require. Mr. Red, could you clarify what we were told before was that you had waived all of that, that you were not contesting the disciplinary action that was taken against him? I think that's what uh, we were told was your position. I'm I'm not sure. We were told that you were not contesting the disciplinary action that was taken. If, If the question is whether we are seeking relief to purge the, the, the discipline, that's right. Well, then what sort of relief are you seeking? We're seeking declaratory relief, Your Honor, that says the prison may not do this without demonstrating some sort of connection between its interests and what it has done. Remember, it has punished Mr. Murphy. But you said you're not challenging the punishment. That's what's so odd about this. Um, the reference, you said, Murphy does not seek expungement of his record, the record I take it being the record of his discipline. That's correct, Your Honor. Well, if you're not challenging that, then I don't understand what interest you have in in an abstract statement of what the law should be in another case. Well, Mr. Murphy continues to be in prison. Um, He continues to give legal advice to other prisoners. Um, He's seeking and sought in this lawsuit prospective relief. But that's I, — I think what's bothering us is we, we understand that there may very well properly be requests for declaratory relief of a general sort. But what you're seeking here apparently isn't declaratory relief as a general sort. It's a declaration that an as-applied challenge, this challenge, this communication, this instance only — uh, is is valid because there's a First Amendment violation. 
And yet, with respect to this specific instance, you're not asking for any relief. It, it doesn't seem to fit into any of, of, of our recognized categories of litigable issues. I, I, I think I understand your question. But Mr. Murphy wants to continue giving legal advice without the fear of sanctions. And a declaration that the prison may not do this without demonstrating some connection between its punishment and the interests it articulates Okay, but as, as a, I'm sorry. I was going to say, as a general proposition, you've already got that in Turner and Safley. Uh, and, and you either want something specific to this case, though without any relief in this particular case, or you want something broader. And when you state what the broader relief is that you might want, it seems to be at about the same level of generality as Turner and Safley itself. So we're, we're stuck as to what we can do for I you, see, even I if see. we accept your position. The, let me catch up. The, uh, the, uh, Mr. Murphy wrote this letter. He said these words. He wants to continue to be able to say these words without fear of sanction. Um, saying to the prison that you may not punish these words without showing us more means that he's, he is armed with something in the future. When the well, prison comes to him and says, Mr. Renz, you say he wants to continue to say these words, but I take it you don't mean exactly these words. I mean, he's not going to report exactly the same incidents if he wants to write to another inmate. You, you mean a letter like this? A letter like this. That the, remember, the prison has acted to apply its rules in a certain way. It's extended the scope of its rule to encompass this kind of speech. Now, the prison is free to do that so long as they show a connection between its interests and the extension of the rule and the punishment of Mr. Murphy. But they haven't done that yet. Well, well if, if, if you say that you're in agreement that there's no special right to, advise, to render legal advice, then all this is is a question whether or not this communication or other communications like them uh, can, for general purposes, be suppressed. Uh, and the... the, the the fact that he wants to give legal advice is, is he doesn't have a right to do that. I, I think that's... So I, I just don't know what... The, this is just well, a routine prison disciplinary case once you, once you concede the, the main proposition on which we granted the, the, the case. Well, he certainly has no special right. I mean, he was hired and retained as a legal clerk. Um, he was, under the practices of the prison, permitted to communicate and assist Mr. Murphy, even though Mr. Murphy may have had counsel. Um, but the question is here, here is whether he can be punished by the prison for his communication. Um, and the prison has taken a rule, expanded its scope to encompass Mr. Murphy's speech, and they've not articulated a basis for it. Uh, Turner, Turner versus Safley uh, dealt with a constitutional right. I mean, the, you know, the right, the right to marry and, you know, rested on, on the proposition that it is settled that a prison inmate retains those constitutional rights that are not inconsistent with his status as a prisoner. Once you've acknowledged that there is no constitutional right to provide legal advice to another prisoner, which was the question presented, how does Turner versus Safley come into play? Well, I, 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 I disagree with your statement, Justice Scalia. I, there is a constitutional right to provide advice to another prisoner. Um, the question is whether it survives a Turner analysis. In this case, it survives the well, Turner now, analysis. Now you have me confused. I thought you acknowledged in response to Justice O'Connor that there is no constitutional right 
to assist another state prison inmate with a pending court case? As I understood Justice O'Connor's question, it was whether or not there was a special sort of elevated right. And I, I, I would have a to agree. A freestanding First Amendment right to represent another prisoner. And I thought you told me, no, there is not. Then that I, then, you did not defend then just, then what just, it was the Ninth Circuit panel then said. Ju- then, Justice O'Connor, I, I apologize because I misunderstood your question. If, well, the, are you defending the Ninth Circuit or are you not? Do you, do you adopt their reasoning and are you prepared to defend it? I'm prepared to defend it. If, if, if we let, — let me — Let's rephrase it. Yes. Uh, because I, I read the question to you before, and I thought I got a different answer. Let's make absolutely sure where you stand on this thing. The question presented is, does the First Amendment to the United States Constitution grant a state prison inmate an independent and freestanding right to assist another state prison inmate with a pending court case, even if the state supplies other forms of legal assistance to the prison inmate? Now, is that a correct statement of the law or an incorrect statement of the law? I th- as as I construe it, I think it's a fair statement, and that is that were Mr. Murphy outside the prison, he would have an independent and freestanding right. Yeah, but he's inside the prison. That's correct. And once he is inside the prison, we then engage in the Turner analysis. I, I, I'm not sure if I'm at a loss to know. I'm what. at a loss to. Um, if we take what I'm saying is that we don't have an independent freestanding right that survives or stands outside of Turner. I think that is a correct statement. Don't defend the Ninth Circuit's decision. To the extent that they create a right outside of Turner. Okay. But they didn't do that. They engaged in a straightforward Turner analysis. They did. They have a whole paragraph where uh, the, I thought the whole paragraph where the, the Ninth Circuit says there's a special right that every prisoner has to represent other prisoners. I mean, well, what, it's on it's appendix page 9 here. It says, uh, the prison discipline of Murphy implicates the First Amendment right recognized by this court in Ritzo, where we held that provision of legal assistance to fellow inmates is an activity protected by the First Amendment. And they said several of our sister circuits have refused to recognize a constitutional right to assist others. Yes. That's not a right to get assistance. That's a right to assist others. Everybody has a constitutional right to be a lawyer. Justice Breyer, that's right. Oh, I read it. I didn't know you had that right, and I haven't seen it. But the the holding in Rizzo was, Rizzo was a retaliation case Mm -hmm. case decided at the pleading stage. And in that case, the prisoner was free to assist other prisoners in his particular prison. Do you think there is a separate freestanding right to assist others in pressing legal claims? That's where A wants to represent B. I'm not talking about B's right to get assistance. I'm talking about A's right to go to somebody and say, I want to, I want to represent you. You think there's a special freestanding First Amendment right to do that? To provide assistance? Yes. Not outside of Turner? Well, I mean, all right, I didn't read Turner recently. Okay. So don't say not outside of Turner. Just say yes or no. Well, yes, there is in the sense that we have the same kind of right outside of prison. Is there? I didn't know there was. I mean, everyone has a right to go assist other people as a lawyer? Not as a lawyer. Do you have what is there, a special First Amendment right to be a lawyer? I don't know what it is. I'm not saying there isn't. No, I'm not familiar. If if the Brotherhood of Trainmen can send a union secretary to another uh, trainman and say, uh, don't settle this case, go see this lawyer, 
And that is protected under the First Amendment. I mean, is a special First Amendment right to do that? I mean, maybe there is. I just haven't seen it. I don't know. I'm not familiar with it. What case? Is there a case that says that? It's the, the Brotherhood of Trainmen, Your Honor. And they, you have a special right to give somebody legal assistance. It's different from your ordinary First Amendment right. No, not different from the ordinary First Amendment. No. You don't think that stemmed from some labor union contract dealing with uh, discipline of employees and union members? I, in, in terms of the right of association? Right. I don't, I don't think necessarily be, because of primus and, and — in, in the private world, outside yes. the labor contract, uh, no labor union agreement, and you just have a non-lawyer who wants to give legal advice to somebody else, is there some freestanding First Amendment right to give legal advice? You don't have to be a lawyer. You have some right to go give legal advice to someone? I would suggest, Your Honor, that the it, it depends upon what we call legal advice. Um, someone on the street can say, gee, you know, this car ran over you. Your case is worth a lot of money. You should go see a lawyer. That's legal advice, but it certainly isn't the sort of legal advice that we consider in terms of what lawyers give. Um, this is much the same character of the, the advice that Murphy gave. Um, gee, I know about these things about, uh, about Mr. Galley. Uh, you should have your lawyer get a hold of me on this. That sounds like somebody saying I'm a witness, I'm a potential witness for you, but not that I'm, I have a right to give you legal advice. And, and, and part of that communication from Mr. Murphy said that exactly, Justice Ginsburg. He said, this happened to me. And that makes him a competent witness. Well, it seems to me that you're arguing for some kind of a right for somebody with relevant information to convey it to, to someone who's in trouble. But that's not the theory that the Ninth Amendment, uh, Ninth Circuit uh, proceeded on. And I'm wondering where they got it from. Was it in your briefs? Did you argue that theory to the Ninth Circuit that there is a right of one person to represent another? I suspect that it may have come from our argument in which we articulated that the prison has no legitimate interest in regulating a communication that is intended for a court outside the prison. Um, I can't say. I don't, I don't you, see that you, specifically in the Ninth Circuit's opinion. Would you object to an opinion from us that says the following? There are passages in the Ninth Circuit's opinion that suggest there exists a such special, separate, freestanding right of a prisoner to represent someone else, even if he doesn't want it or whatever. We are not aware of any such right. Of course, the First Amendment applies to prisons as anywhere else, and so we've written about that. So go back and consider it. I think that's a fair statement of law, Justice Breyer. That's what you'd like? Yes. Uh, what about adding, and we're not certain how you happen to be in court, because uh, there might be a problem here of declaratory relief, uh, what you asked for in your, in your complaint was a declaration that Rule 009 and 022 are too vague and that this violated uh, and that you can't have a policy in a prison which says content of a letter is relevant to discipline. Well, now, now we're talking about fashioning relief, and I, I think yeah. that's for the lower. Well, you'll be happy to be thrown back into the briar patch, essentially, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I, I would not be objecting to being thrown into the briar patch. Um, I... I I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that, that uh, 
the, the crafting of relief is, is, is something that needs to be done. We haven't done that. Well, there are many other imaginative uh, uh, solutions of this case that can be uh, devised, I suppose, and this, this would knock off one of them anyway. I, I think so. I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of jumping down the road here when we talk about the form of relief. I mean, the, the form of relief hasn't been crafted yet, and I think that we, we can do that. Mr. Renz, I don't want to invade your attorney-client privilege or anything like that, so don't answer the question you think is improper. But I'm just very puzzled. How is it that you're not challenging the discipline to your client when you're challenging the basis for the discipline? Well, as, as we read Edwards — well, Edwards hadn't been decided yet. As we read uh, Heck and, 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 and played Heck out, um, it was our view that we were not in a position to purge the, uh, the sanction against him. Um, to the extent that uh, — But the sanction must have adverse consequences for his future status in prison, doesn't it? That would be true, but it, uh, an opinion uh, from the District Court or the Ninth Circuit that said he was uh, — that what he had done was protected by the Constitution would uh, certainly vitiate that. Not if you're not asking to be, have it expunged. It'll still be on his record. I'm, be his I'm record, very puzzled. But, I just don't quite understand. But, 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 but the holding of the Court that what he had done was protected by the Constitution and, and was — legal and permitted uh, would also be before the parole board or whoever might see that. Oh, so you could, you could get it expunged later. I mean, this is a strange manner of litigating, uh, that you bring a declaratory judgment that something that's been done to you was unlawful, and then bring a second suit to undo what was done to you because it has been declared to be unlawful. I, I, I don't understand that. I'm, I'm not sure that the conditions for a declaratory judgment exist when it is I mean, it is equitable relief, and I'm not sure a court should should provide it well, when there is available to you legal relief that, that will give full satisfaction to your client. We, we do seek conjunctive relief in this case, Judge. Well, I understand that. That's that's equitable, but, but yes. it, it, I, I don't think that a court ought to give that if, if you don't care enough about what's happened to you to, to seek to have that undone. I, I understand that. Several years ago we held in a habeas corpus case where the person sought declaratory relief, also from the Ninth Circuit, incidentally, that when there's a specific remedy provided, you can't impose a declaratory judgment on top of it. Mm -hmm. But this Court also held in Edwards v. Balasak, and, and that was a prison discipline case, that, uh, that the, the correction of that prison discipline was not something that was cognizable under Section 1983. There are no further questions. I'll submit the case. Thank you, Mr. Renz. Uh, Mr. Oler, you have four minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, I, I don't have any rebuttal, but I would be happy to answer any questions. Would you respond to the last point? Was, was there any manner in which this litigant could have gotten the allegedly unlawful imposition of discipline undone through the courts? Was there no means by which that could have been done? I believe that he could have sought expungement of, of the disciplinary infraction. How, how would that proceed? He'd challenge it before the prison administration, and if it was rejected by the prison administration, then he would go where? Surely to state court, I assume he could have gone. Could have gone to state court, yes. And what about federal court? It seems to me that he could have, he could have raised that in, in this particular case, Your Honor. Um, 
What if he were now to go back to the district court and ask to amend the complaint and say, under my prayer for any other relief or whatever the language is, I would like to have this order expunged from my record? Would that be untimely? Um, it seems to me it would be untimely, Your Honor. But I, I, I don't have a firm answer with respect to the law. Thank you, Mr. Oler. The case is submitted.